It is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. It is episode 70 of Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. And it's our first episode of 2023. Happy New Year to everybody out there listening on our uh, audio stream or on our YouTube stream. He's David Cohn, our ace. It is our research ace, James Smythe, as well. I'm Justin Shackle, uh, producer Dan Rourke here as well. And guys, we took one week off. I don't know about you, but it feels like we took a month off. And yet, it also doesn't feel like we missed much in the baseball world, especially uh, on, on the pitching side. But uh, I have to say, we cannot start this episode without wishing a big happy birthday to Coney. It was a, a milestone birthday for David Cohn. 60 big ones, David. And I know we are uh, all a little different about birthdays at this point in our lives. Is is this number a, a big deal for you? How do you feel about turning 60? Uh, you know, I guess... Uh... You know, to quote Casey at bat, you know, there is no joy in Mudville here for me. I mean, it, that it was, a, it was a, it was a punch in the gut. You know, I know a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I'm happy to be here. I had a great day. It's a milestone, 60 years old, but wow, that, that one, that one hit me harder than 50. You know, everybody talks about 50 years old being the big one, but 60, I mean, I'm, I went to the movie theaters. I'm like a couple of years from senior discount. So, I mean, it's, that was a slap in the face there. I, I get, well, then again, you know, maybe, maybe I get a little break on the movie fees, but uh, yeah, no, it was a great day though. It was a good day to spend with the family. But you're feeling good. And you probably in your head, you're, you probably still think you're what, like 35, 40. Well, I got a new hip. So the hip replacement certainly helps. So yeah, I, I'm walking around a lot better. I'm moving better, playing some golf. So yeah, I, I, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, if I do the math, like James and I are both in our, our 30s. James, I don't know about you, but I, I in my head, I still think like, hey, I'm 25. I can do anything like that. I that I could do no problem in my mid 20s. So, yeah, just just doing the math there. David probably thinks he's still around 40, 45. Uh, yeah, <laughs> James and I uh, still in our mid 30s. Dan Rourke, his early 20s, the the age we all are, are, are envious over and we aspire to try and go back, turn back the clock on Father Time. Um, all right, lots to do here this episode, the first episode of the new year. But as we start off every episode here on Toe on the Slab, we begin with the opener. And David starts us off with a topic that is on his mind. David, what do you have for us? Well, it just seems like a good time to bring it up. I mean, you know, my 60, year, uh, 60 years on this planet, but uh, how about the New York Yankees being sold 50 years ago? January 3rd for 10 million or roughly $10 million. I mean, we've told this story a lot, but it's a great time to revisit it on the 50th anniversary and CBS previously owned the team, George Steinbrenner with a, with a, a group of investors uh, bought the team. I think it included some parking garages as well, but it was essentially around $10 million in cash. And supposedly that was about 3 million, a little over 3 million less than CBS paid for it. Uh, a few years prior. So, you know, I always talk on here about teams, you know, sports teams have never sold for a loss. CBS claims that they broke even on that deal, you know, based on uh, however you want to finagle the books. But uh, nonetheless, well, from 10 million in 1973 to what are the Yankees worth right now? 10 billion, maybe everything together, the, the, the network, uh, everything that was built up by George Steinbrenner and his family, just truly one of the remarkable family stories without a doubt in, in, in American pro sports history. And you think about 50 years ago to get today, New York Yankees were sold for about $10 million. One of the, uh, maybe the premier sports franchise uh, in America. And uh, Shaq, you got the money quote there, right? From, uh, from Steinbrenner. 
Yeah, so it was uh, it was this day 50 years ago, January 3rd, exactly. And at the podium, you had George Steinbrenner, as well as a, a couple of uh, other investors, because they bought it as a group for 10 million. So it wasn't like just one person spending the 10 million buying them from CBS like that. But George Steinbrenner said, quote, we plan absentee ownership as far as running the Yankees is concerned. We're not going to pretend we're something we aren't. I'll stick to building ships. Uh, George Steinbrenner was uh, in the, sh- you know, the, the shipping business in, in Ohio. He, he was, uh, I don't know the proper term, but yeah, he, he built ships. Um, and uh, he, he did not abide by that quote as we came to learn, thankfully. So uh, <laughs> it's a, a pretty good quote there and a, and a pretty big event that took place uh, 50 years ago. I think guys like, it's on the list of like top purchases of all time. Forget sports, like in the history of mankind. <laughs> yes, so true. And still in the Steinbrenner family in a day and in, in an era where it's, you know, uh, more corporate, obviously big corporations and then multi conglomerates are our own owners uh, of, of major professional sports teams. It's still the Steinbrenner family. And if you look back, the attendance back then, I, th- I saw this figure. If you go, if you Google uh, the sale of this, Joe Durso, Joseph Durso was a great writer for a number of years back with the New York Times. And he wrote a great article that you can pick back up from January, the attendance for the Yankees that year, under 1 million. And across town, the New York Mets, who finished third in the National League East, drew over 2 million that year. So you can, just to kind of paint the picture of what was going on back in 1973, the Mets were drawing over 2 million. The Yankees dipped under a million. CBS was looking to get out of the baseball business. George Steinbrenner was a shipbuilder. Talks about, I'm going to keep building ships. I'm not going to get into the baseball business in terms of decision-making. Wow. <laughs> I mean, all these years later, uh, the, you look at the, the the storm that was happening back then and, and, and with the benefit of hindsight and what we know now. It is truly, as you said, Jack, just just a remarkable story, maybe the greatest of all professional sports franchises and and the story behind it uh, that's ever been told. The team was restored to glory pretty quickly because when the Yankees were a moribund franchise when the purchase was made under CBS's ownership, the the team did very poorly. Um, the the run of pennants had stopped. They won uh, an AL pennant in 1964. They did not reached the postseason again until 1976. But with the new ownership in 1973, they embraced, they jumped into the early days of free agency and they won three straight American League pennants from 1976 to 78. The last two of those, of course, being World Series titles. So uh, the the Yankees uh, got back on track pretty quickly. Yeah, this purchase was the like the restoration of success for the New York Yankees. And one thing that pops out in my head as we're talking about this now, only because it just happened a couple of weeks ago, Aaron judge being named the 16th captain in Yankees history. Like the Yankees didn't have a captain uh, from Lou Gehrig's captaincy until Thurman Munson was named captain. So that's like a small little nugget that where, where George Steinbrenner and the other buyers just kind of restored the order, obviously led by, by George in this point, but just bringing this, organization back to to where it was putting it on a path of success like the 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 question i was about to ask was like man what if like cbs held on to it well probably really different for the worse for for the new york yankees like nothing like the the events that transpire like it's not like 
the Yankees would have gone on to do what they did in the late 70s, CBS becoming even bigger than you know what it was at the time, this big, powerful network owning one of the largest and most successful sports franchises on earth like no like they, that's not running parallel as this wouldn't have happened unless they did sell it to this group of buyers obviously and eventually uh being spearheaded by by george steinbrenner so yeah 50 years ago today uh the yankees purchased for uh what what we could find you know in between our couch cushions if you're if you're a baseball owner today it's 10 million bucks no problem uh all right a couple of topics to get to here and let's start off with let's start off with the uncomfortable topic here and and it's about Trevor Bauer former Cy Young award winner from 2020 um a, a couple of weeks ago an arbitrator ruled that the Dodgers have until January the 6th so this Friday to either add Bauer to their 40-man roster or release him following the conclusion of his 194 game suspension uh the Dodgers owe roughly 22 million to Bauer and there was a report over the weekend from John Heyman that L.A. is expected to release him, that people in the Dodgers clubhouse would prefer that he'd be elsewhere. Before this case against Bauer, he wasn't the most popular teammate, not the easiest guy to, I don't want to say get along with, but half the time I think like Trevor Bauer before this case, like misunderstood half of it, him being maybe difficult to um you know, acclimate himself to to his teammates, just a difficult guy to to get along with. So the first question to answer here is whether we think other teams will pursue Bauer if he is released. What do you think about that, guys? It's probably a PR nightmare for any team to try to, to try to approach this and touch it. I mean, I don't know what happened. I, mean, I, I just read, I just know what I've read, you know, and, and uh, it, it's ugly, obviously, you know, uh, that type of, that type of abuse and what's alleged against him is, is just mind, mind boggling, mind boggling. When you, when you look at the details of what supposedly has happened now, with that being said, you know, due process, he went through due process uh, he was not charged, but that doesn't mean that, you know, something didn't happen there that was really bad. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert. I don't know what happened. Uh, there's two sides of Trevor Bauer. What you mentioned on the first side, he's always been kind of a lightning rod on the pitching side. He's a savant. He was ahead of the curve in terms of analytics, in terms of uh, how to train. Uh, he was really much maligned for that going back to college because he had his own ideas about about pitching coaches, he butted heads along the way. He was proven right. So on the pitching side, just the mechanical side, the analytical side, he is truly a savant. Uh, but on the off the field stuff and what allegedly happened, that is poison right now. So I, I don't know how you get past that at this point. If you're another team, you're thinking about it. But he's a supremely talented pitcher. As I said before, he's ahead of the curve in terms of training one of the smartest guys I've ever heard talk about pitching. I've learned a lot listening to him talking about pitching, the mechanics of pitching and how to train. Uh, so yeah, in the study of spin and spin rate, he was the guy who broke the the spider tack issue. You know, he was the guy who talked about it and proved it actually went out in the middle of a game and used sticky stuff and increased his spin rate and showed people this, see, this is how this works. So, uh, you know, without a doubt, you know, one of the smartest, best pitchers out there, but off the field stuff makes him poison right now. I don't know how you get past that. Um, I, 
I agree. I don't think uh, a team is going to to go out on a limb and, and take him. And I hope he's thrown his last pitch in the major leagues. Um, the possible reinstatement, uh, the reinstatement does not undo the suspension that he's already served. So they upheld 194 games of the suspension, which is by a good amount, by over 30 games longer than any other previous suspension under this policy. Uh, the, the details of, uh, of uh, what happened uh, is, is pretty gruesome. And, uh, and I think that um, a, a team would just be opening up a, a really bad can of worms if they, uh, if they went out and, and, and picked them up. I don't think it's worth it. And um, yeah, not much else to say after that. Yeah, I think when the news broke uh, that the, you know, the arbitrator re- ended his suspension, allowed him to be kind of reinstated, gave the Dodgers this January 6th deadline. Initially, I thought, well, look, they're probably just going to release him and there's no way he pitches again. And the, the, as the days go by, the more I hear other people around the industry talk about it, I don't know if we've moved on from uh, you know, the, the fact that if you have a an all-world talent that you're not going to be given another chance. If you have elite talent, we've seen these people be given chance after chance after chance um, until there's a stand taken against players or, or athletes who, you know, and again, we don't know exactly, we don't know specifically what happened, what didn't happen, but if, you know, these things um, definitely did happen, like, man, um, it'd be really tough to to grant him that next chance we haven't seen that yet so until we see it i'm it's going to be tough for me to believe that a a sport uh collectively is going to take that stand uh, against an athlete that being said um you know i i i probably don't want to go further in terms of like well look if if teams are going to take that chance they're they're going to take that pr hit that like let's be honest it's going to last for a few weeks in spring training and you're going to have a pocket of society continuing to watch that, call them out. But for the most part, people are going to move on. We're going to move on with the season. And, you know, it's going to be back to baseball. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't – I don't. what do you guys think? Like, do you, do you want to identify the team? I know they did it on Talking Baseball. Like, do you want to go down that, down that path where we could think about which type of team would uh, be interested in that or, or take that chance? Is it too tough to do it right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really hard to say. Now, with that being said, I'm a big believer in due process. He still maintains his innocence on his side. But with everything being said, from a PR standpoint, it's still poison for any team that takes that shot. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to deny anybody due process. I want to give him every chance to defend himself. I don't know what happened. I just know what I've read. It's ugly. I mean, th- those types of allegations, I think that's why we, I, it, it, it shocks you uh, when, when you see what was alleged. So I don't know. I mean, it, which teams, I mean, uh, how desperate are you in, in terms of a need for pitching? There's always desperation for pitching. There's always a need for somebody of his ilk because he's that good and, and he's that talented. And just from a baseball standpoint, he has a great influence on other pitchers around him because he, as I said before, he really is a baseball savant. And he really is a guy who understands analytics. He understands how to use all the technology. 
that's a good guy to have in a clubhouse is just from a pitching mechanic standpoint. And he has been a good influence on several other pitchers, including Mike Clevenger credited him in Cleveland the years there with, with teaching him, you know, how to use all of the analytics, how to use all the new toys, how to increase his spin rate, how to increase his velocity, all of it across the board. He's been a good influence in that regard. The off the field stuff, as I said before, he maintains his innocence. Uh, You know, I don't know what happened. Uh, I believe that everybody should defend themselves. I believe everybody should have the right to defend themselves, but you know, that this one, this one is a different level of, of salaciousness that really is hard to get by just from a PR standpoint, regardless of what really happened. This is a situation where if you're a major league team, you've got to get past this from a PR standpoint. It makes it really difficult. Yeah. I think, um, being an, an elite pro athlete is a privilege. Uh, at the same time, like you said, we 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 don't know uh, what happened, and also big firm believers in due process here. Um, I think there's going to be that team. I really do. Um, and and we'll have to wait and see. January sixth is coming up. For it, it, first and foremost, it rests in what the Dodgers choose to do this week. So you have to be on the lookout with that with with LA and Trevor Bauer. Um, all right, with everyone kind of back to business, New Year's here, um, everyone going back to work, let's take a look at some teams that could potentially stand to do a little bit more work before spring training. So with everyone back at it, uh, which perceived contender in your eyes, gentlemen, has the most to do when it comes to addressing their pitching needs? Uh, you know. Um... I think if you look at, um, for me, the Philadelphia Phillies have taken the next step signing Turner. I'm not sure if they're done on the pitching side, if they have quite enough in terms of their pitching top to bottom. Um, I, I really feel like Dave, Dombr- Dave Dombrowski is that kind of guy. He's not going to stop. The ownership's not going to stop. Uh, I, I think they're the team that probably the next step, you know, is, is to, to, to fill out their entire whether it's the bullpen or the rotation, their entire pitching staff, I think, is the team to watch because they're an interesting team right now. Keep making it to the World Series. They're on a high note. Their fan base is loaded. Their attendance is going to be way up next year. Their television ratings are going to be way up. Everybody's anticipating the Phillies right now. They're the everybody's favorite pick right now. I think they have more work to do on the pitching side. I, I guess I, I was thinking St. Louis because they're – so good on the position player side. You have two guys who, as long as they're going to be there, are going to be perennial MVP contenders in Goldschmidt and Arenado. And the you look at their rotation, you look at their bullpen, and you know the rotation is is good, not great. I mean, there's not really any um, impact pitchers left on the free agent market, but maybe there's a, an opportunity for them to make a trade to to upgrade the rotation. Two other teams that jumped out to me. I, it's just you said contenders, so. My first thought was Boston uh, or the Angels, but I don't know if they're contendery enough to uh, to be in this part of the conversation. Because if you look at Boston's projected rotation, the Red Sox right here, uh, just looking at their depth chart here, Chris Sale, Corey Kluber helps, but uh, Nick Pavetta, James Paxton, Garrett Whitlock, Brian Bayo, that's, uh, that's probably not going to uh, be enough. Um, and the Angels always seem to be a little short on the pitching end, even with Otani. I'm with you. I kept catching myself when I wanted to 
think about Boston, I'm like, well, hold on. Like, I, I don't, I just don't flat out think they're a contender, period. So um, that, that, that's the one I was tricking myself with. I have, I have four teams that I feel like their window to make some serious noise is open. And uh, there are two other teams that I feel like can make that effort to, I always talk about, Hey, if you are um, in that championship window, you got it. Sometimes you got to leave no doubt. You got to make that bold move. And David, you alluded to the Phillies. They're one of them, but I even have like a specific item that could be on these teams to do list. And maybe it's outrageous. I want to know what you guys think. I think teams at this moment should make offers for Corbin Burns that the Brewers cannot refuse. And I'm talking specifically teams like the Phillies, the Rays, uh, the Rangers, despite the additions they've already made to their pitching staff, and the Mariners. If they can lock up that some of that momentum, you think about Dave Dombrowski, Jerry Depoto, very bold GMs, not afraid to make a dynamic trade like that. I think you might have something there. I think there's going to be some convincing to do with Milwaukee at this stage. But look, he's two years away from free agency. He's going to get even pricier. I think they may even entertain trading a guy like Corbin Burns, depending where they're at, at the midpoint of this season. Again, depending on the standings, they still have plenty of pitching to contend. I think if you're a team like the Phillies, if you're a guy like Dave Dombrowski, you're talking with the Brewers right now, trying to figure out what it could take to get Corbin Burns on your team by spring training. That That's an interesting uh, note right there. He's that good. Yes, everybody would be interested in having Corbin Burns. I mean, he's fantastic. What a great pitcher. I, I, you can't help but feel like Milwaukee's future is tied to maybe unloading one of their big contracts, namely, namely Yelich. Yelich is still on the books. They signed him at, at his peak. Still a good player, but nowhere near his production from, from when he originally signed that, that long-term deal. Uh, maybe there's a tie-in there, I think, with, with, with Milwaukee to try to unload that, that contract potentially and rebuild uh, from, from that point. And maybe Burns is in, in, in part of that deal as well. So uh, not only do they need significant talent coming back, but maybe a little salary relief too. So just, just an interesting point off the top of my head. But I look at Christian Yelich there in Milwaukee, and I'm wondering, hmm, you know, uh, d- d- does he see the end of that contract there in Milwaukee? Or is he part of some sort of uh, a deal to unload that that contract, at, 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 not this year, but in the in the immediate future? I, I love the ideas with the uh, the Phillies and Mariners, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound then, you know, really going all in to try and make an even bigger splash in some of the ones they've made in the, in the last uh, couple of years. Um, the Brewers, it's hard, hard to know what they're, what they're doing. I believe they're the only team that has not signed a big league free agent this offseason. Um, so with the Brewers, they're always in it un- under this, under this uh, leadership of, uh, of the, the Stearns Council uh, era Brewers. Um, but if their window is closing and, and Burns is approaching free agency, maybe they pull the plug. It's going to be a free agent after the 2024 season. So you'd have two full years if you're trying to acquire Corbin Burns right now. That would be an absolute haul that the Brewers would have to ask for in return. Uh, keep an eye on that. I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. 
bold, bold GMs making bold moves with their teams, having that window of opportunity to win right now. That's a move that I'd like to see for a team to add to their, uh, their rotation here. All right. Aaron judge at the tail end of 2022 guys was named the associated Press's male athlete of the year. Very deserving. It happened one year after Shohei Otani captured the award. So Baseball players winning that award two years in a row. That's pretty awesome in itself. But my question here is, after those two players, who in Major League Baseball could most likely come away with that honor this year? Well, you're always on the Shohei Otani watch every year because he's just breaking new ground. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 judging Otani's world right now as they go back and forth. Um, somebody else, I, well, it's... Hard to say, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of great players, but those type of players like Judge and Otani that transcend the sport are very rare. I mean, when when Judge, we were covering the game in Texas. I was there with Michael Kay when Judge broke the all-time home run record, bro, the American League home run record at 62. Immediately, there were tweets and congratulatory uh, notes out there from all walks of life, including President Biden, weighing in during the game. So that's a transcend, transcending the sport type of a figure there. So those, those, those are just so few and far between. So I, I'm not sure there's another person out there quite like, uh, you know, Shohei Otani or Aaron Judge as far as the, 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 the male athlete of the year, not the player of the year in Major League Baseball, the overall athlete of the year. But it's hard for a baseball player to be in that category. I think it's cool that that Judge and Otani, they, they not only have they won the last two years, but this year Judge was first and Otani was second. So uh, a little feather in the cap for baseball fans like, hey, we got superstars in our game, too. Um, just trying to th think of somebody. How about uh, Mookie Betts? I'm thinking someone who, who is a dynamic talent who's on a really good team. You know, he hasn't had a year like his 2018 MVP season, which was, you know, right up there with any of the great, you know, trout and, and judge seasons that we've had in, in recent times, but he's a, a great personality, a big talent. If he has like a big resurgent year and the Dodgers win the world series or something, I could see him maybe having a, uh, having a, a, a claim like that. So I'll, I'll, uh, outside of judge and Otani, I think there's a big, uh, they're kind of in their own little universe there, but, uh, how about Mookie? I was thinking along the same routes as you, James, like first and foremost, there's just to borrow a phrase for a money ball. Like there's, there's judge, there's Otani, there's what a big pile of shit. And then there's the third <laughs> person who we, we may think uh, can come away with such a prestigious award. I was going to choose a guy like Juan Soto, but for all the same reasons that you probably chose bets, like have a miraculous outstanding otherworldly type season as the Padres go on to, to win the world series, young talent, you know, could still, in fact, be the the future face of baseball. Has that type of potential? Would have this big bounce back season and just have a a terrific run carrying a team like the Padres to the World Series. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe Justin Verlander. If you take a look, at the opposite end of the spectrum, able to come back, pitch for a team in in a major market at the age that he's uh, performing at, performing at a similar level to what he did in 2022 have that type of success. But again, um, it's probably going to have to be a, a type of season that puts everything in like historical perspective. It's going to have to be a massive season for him because you couple that with the age defying uh, aspect of it all. 
again, similar to what Tom Brady is able to do. Maybe that's the route you go as well, but I just think it's Judge Otani, and then you have a lot of distance between that that next player that we're trying to identify. It's tough. Which it's a great makes, point. Which makes Otani and uh, Judge what they've done stand out even more. So yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, we're talking about the AP Male Athlete of the Year, all sports. Yeah. You know, they, it's, that just shows you uh, what type of outliers we have in Aaron Judge and and in Shohei Otani. They're they're breaking new ground, sort of like a you know a trailblazers, and uh, that that's hard to do in baseball. It's hard to repeat. So yeah, you, those those are the guys you watch. Does Aaron Judge repeat it? What are the chances of Aaron Judge hitting 60-plus home runs again this year? I mean, wow. I mean, there's got to be some regression, right? You would think. But Shohei Otani still blazing a new trail on both sides of the ball. So he's the guy to watch, without a doubt. Anybody else? Mookie Betts wins a triple crown, maybe. Justin Verlander wins another Cy Young, okay. But does that put him head and shoulders above every other athlete in every other sport? That, that's that's the trick, and that, that's the hard part to do, which makes it even more remarkable. Two baseball players, two years in a row, that 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 did that. That that's rare and in and of itself. That Major League Baseball would have a player that would win that award. All right, another item that we saw between the, I guess, the Christmas holiday and, and New Year's that that week of purgatory that I kind of call it. Um, late last week, it was reported that ten Major League umpires are retiring. Um, it, it's the most amount of umpires who are retiring since 2009. I'm wondering, is it mostly coincidence that this many umpires are retiring at once? It makes you wonder a little bit, but all these guys are veteran guys uh, that they, they've uh, had long distinguished careers. You know, uh, uh, for me, a, a shout out to Ted Barrett, who was uh, behind home plate during my perfect game, actually did two perfect games, a remarkable career, one of the best stand-up guys you'll ever meet. Um, so, yeah, may, maybe there's something more to it. Maybe they thought this was the perfect time to get out. Rule changes, potentially, um, you know, automated strike zone, maybe in the future coming. You know, maybe there's a little bit of that involved. Maybe they thought this was a good time to get out, but all of them deserve uh, whatever decisions they make because they have, they've all had long distinguished careers and I, I think their pensions are secure. So um, maybe they felt like, you know, the, the travel, the wear and tear, the rules changes a lot. I'm sure there was a lot of variables involved in the decision-making only they can answer it. You know, it's probably a little column a, a little column B um, to have that many in one off season retire is, uh, is enough to raise your eyebrows and maybe that is part of it. But like Coney said, the, these guys have all had, uh, you know, long careers. We're talking 20 plus years um, doing the uh, if, you, if you see on the yes broadcast, we do that umpire uh, scouting report where we get uh, numbers from Sports Info Solutions to kind of give a little scouting report. OK, this guy calls more outside strikes or more low strikes or whatever. And putting that together for each series for the four umpires that get assigned, I one of the notes that we start with is the guy's name and and his how many seasons in MLB is this? And I I'm always struck by there are a lot of guys who've been in the game for a really long time. We're 25, 30 plus seasons in, in the major leagues. And it's a tough life. So, um, you know, kudos to these guys for uh, for hanging them up. And uh, yes, yeah, so when when Ted Barrett uh, uh, was was on the list, I, I thought of you, Coney, because because uh, of your perfect game and uh, and Tom Hallion with the uh, yes. the ass and the jackpot. Uh, video with uh, with Terry Collins uh, on the mic. So um, 
yeah, it was it was uh, notable to see that many retirements. Yeah, I will. I'll say this. You know, it used to be the, the job was more artistic. When you were a home plate umpire, there was more art involved. Reading the pitcher, good control got rewarded. Veteran pitchers got a little deference if they had good control, the Greg Maddox strike zone versus a rookie strike zone. Now everything's so technical. And we see it with the box, sort of the strike zone box on every telecast. Umpires are graded on every single pitch. It's so, so much more specific and technical about exactly the location of the pitch that the artistic value of, of home plate umpiring is kind of a thing of the past. And I'll say this, I'm, I'm 60. I've had these glasses since I was 50. Uh, a lot of the younger umpires, they do have a little better vision and they are generally speaking, they tend to grade out a little bit higher on, on being able just to be so technically specific on where the pitch is according to automated strike zones or what we're looking at in the future. It does make a difference. I mean, you know, eyesight matters, you know, all joking aside, and it's it's hard. It's hard to call these pitches so specifically now if you're 50 or 60 years old trying to do a major league uh, home plate game with guys throwing 100 miles an hour. Really hard to do. And to get one inch or one half inch off the edge right every time. Really, really difficult job to do as opposed to the artistic nature of the job, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I've, I've said it's never been harder to be a big league catcher these days. I think the same goes for the guy crouching right behind him. I don't, I don't think it's never been harder to be a big league on. 100%. Uh, you have 10 umpires calling it a career. So you have to have 10 new umpires uh, hired, bringing to the fold for 2023. That is a lot of new faces for these types of jobs. And David, you mentioned it before as well. Maybe a, a reason why... So many umpires are retiring. New rules are set to begin this coming season. So between 10 new umpires essentially learning on the job at the highest level, you combine that with the new rules that are set to begin here. How big of a storyline will this be once the season begins? Well, it's, it's a storyline because it, it's an opportunity for other young, young people to get a chance, an opportunity to, to diversify the workforce. I don't think the of, of the 10 that'll be replacements that we have a female in there yet, but I know one's a couple are on the way in the minor leagues and double A AA and triple A. So, you know, on, on the flip side, a chance to diversify the workforce. And eventually we're going to have a woman umpire umpiring behind home plate. And, and we're not far away from that day. And that, that's a great thing for major league baseball as we continue to d- diversify, continue to, to have all walks of life, get a chance to, to participate in major league baseball. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's great. And we, they're, women who are uh, officials in the NBA and, and, and um, working uh, on NFL officiating crews. So, so that's great. And as far as uh, the, the storyline with, with the new rules, I think it's a huge thing now, maybe on a, on a smaller level, you know, something like a pitch clock, we'll all get used to it pretty quickly, but there's this, this uh, mystery and fascination with how are all these things going to go um, as we start the season. Um, April is going to be, uh, pretty interesting in that in that respect because we're nobody knows how people are going to react to it whether it's the shift uh, restrictions or the pitch clock um, among some other among other among other things uh, it'll be something to watch and now with the the new umpires uh, sort of being tangential to that that adds another wrinkle that uh, we'll have to keep an eye on 
new schedule too. So yeah, yeah really, we really are at a crossroads in major league baseball, historically speaking in terms of changes. I think this should definitely have our attention, especially at the outset of the season. I'm, and I'm wondering like how, how much more lean, I don't know if lenient is the right word, but like David should, should managers have more patience. Do you think they can afford to have more patience with new faces adapting to the new rules? Everyone's going to be adapting to the new rules, but I mean, I think like, I mean, how many times do we see Aaron Boone over the course of the season arguing balls and strikes with the umpires, not just him, every manager at some point during their season, but are, are they going to be having more patience with some of these new faces? Interesting to see. Yeah. It's a great point, Jack, as, as, as you bring that up. Um, yeah, you're going to have to be a little more patient, but it's going to be difficult when the outcome of games are on the line because of the pitch clock. There's where there, there will be pain. You know, early in the game, up, you miss the clock, that's a ball. Base is loaded, that's ball four, a run scores. You just lose the game based on the pitch clock. Those are the type of scenarios that are going to test every manager's patience and, and whether or not uh, – you know, how that rule is being called to the letter of the law. Umpires following the clock. Did it hit zero? Did it get the pitch off? What's going on with, with the timing of that particular rule? I think that's where we're looking at the most pain being right now. And pitchers getting used to it. Is that going to be a balk? Is that going to be a ball? The hitters too. Hitters get in the box. You know, there's there's ramifications for the hitters too as well. So we call it the pitch clock. It's a hit clock too. So it, it's, it's on both of them to be ready to, to, to go into action, but that's the rule I'm looking at. And that's the rule is going to test most managers patience. I think more so than 10 new umpires, you know, calling balls and strikes behind home plate. Uh, in some ways, those guys might be better because they're coming up trained with the new strike zone. They're, they're, they're used to being graded on a much more difficult scale in terms of the automated strike zone. So they know, you know, the high strike, the in and out, not too much off the plate. You know, that those umpires are being trained that way. Whereas the umpires that are retiring, they were trained in a whole different way back in the day. That's a really good way of looking at it. Actually. It's like, you know, pitchers coming up through organizations, they get here, they're already throwing high heat with, with a ton of movement now. So may, maybe it actually there, there won't be as large of a learning curve as we might expect. Interesting. Um, Let's move on to our our Yankee segment here at the end of the episode. Still need to come up with a name. We got to get uh you know we got to get in the boardroom and come up with an official title here with this segment. But one of the biggest stories in the sport right now, I think one is is Trevor Bauer, but the other surrounds Carlos Correa. And there's really been no news with these two players. But once there is a development, I think it's going to make big headlines, big news. And Carlos Correa and the Mets are in a similar situation right now that Correa was with the Giants. There's a lot of promise and optimism that a deal with the Mets and Correa can still get done despite the Mets having some concerns over his physical and situation with his ankle. I'm wondering a couple of things as it pertains to the Yankees. Right now, how closely should the Yankees be monitoring Carlos Correa's situation with the Mets and does this have the potential to blow up despite what we're hearing about the Mets and Correa wanting to get a deal done? I, I guess the fact that it's taken this long leads you to believe that there is a chance it could fall apart. I mean, it, it's already fallen apart once and with San Francisco, uh, you would think that 
the Mets are going to do everything they can to still make this deal happen. I mean, they sold a bunch of tickets the day after he was announced, you know, at, at City Field. Uh, he is a put fannies in the seats kind of a player. He got the fan base lit up. Is there some sort of language that could be put into the contract to give them give the Mets some sort of protection? I doubt that insurance could could cover that. I think, you know, insurance has become much more tricky as far as insuring body parts, insuring contracts for major league teams. It's much more tricky nowadays. Some, I don't, I'm not even sure if it's even as big as it once was, but I'm not sure you could get an insurance company like a Lloyd's of London to insure Carlos Correa's ankle that has a plate, a metal plate in it from a minor league injury. So how do you, how do you guard against that and on down the road in a 12 year deal? So I'm sure that's probably what they're exploring is some sort of language that will give the, give the Mets some sort of protection as far as that goes. Now, Scott Boris would say, Hey, wait a minute. This is an injury that's not inhibiting him from playing. He's playing at a top level right now. This is about doctors trying to project on an MRI, what they think might happen on down the road. Uh, That's an inexact science at best. This is guesswork. Uh, you know, educated guesswork. I'll give him that, you know, on doctors looking at MRIs, but I could see both sides of it. The Mets wanting a little protection on the back end and Scott Boris and, and, and Carlos Correa saying, Hey, what are you talking about? I'm fine. This is not bothering me at all. I'm playing at a high level. This is, this is just you guessing based on an MRI of what might happen in year eight, nine, 10, or 11 and 12 in this contract. So where's the happy medium? I, I kind of feel like they will work it out, though. You know, my guess is that they'll find some sort of protective language they can plug into the contract that will protect the Mets on the back end, and Carlos Correa can live with it, or Scott Boros can live with it, and he still ends up being a, being a member of the Mets because I think at this point, that's what he's always wanted to be part of a team that's got a chance to win. He's willing to move to third base. He knows the Mets are in it. They're going to be in it every year. That's what he's always wanted to be on a team like that in a major market with a chance to play in postseason. And he's got a pretty good, pretty good postseason resume already. So that that's what, that's what he wants uh, to, to sort of put him in a position to maybe one day go to the hall of fame. Uh, yes. The Yankees should be monitoring similar to how the Mets parachuted in out of nowhere and, and, and grabbed him uh, after the giants thing fell through. I'm, I'm with Coney. I think they end up hammering something out with the Mets and, um, and he will be a Met uh, come opening day. I do wonder, um, you know, Coney, you mentioned language in the contract. Well, we see with pitchers uh, a lot of times where a guy will sign a contract and there's language that, you know, things like vesting options and 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 you know, uh, things will uh, be triggered based on if the pitcher goes on the IL with an elbow injury. Like if you sign a guy coming off Tommy John, there's language to protect in case that injury crops up or a guy with a shoulder issue. If, and it's specific that, you know, it becomes a team option or then they can void the contract if it's something with a shoulder issue. So you can probably make language based around that, that, um, that lower leg um, to make a clause based on that uh, in, in the latter half of the deal if something crops up. Would I realistically think it'll happen? Maybe, maybe, you know, Correa loses a year or two on what the current offer that was being reported stands at. I think, though, that the fact that a resolution hasn't been reached out as of this moment, you can't dismiss the fact that it may blow up. Uh, Yes, I think the Yankees should be keeping tabs on what's going on here. I'm wondering, though, like, does this have the potential to blow up to the point where Correa and Scott Boris 
lose so much leverage that they kind of have to re reduce their demands as far as length of contract. And I mean, I'm talking about uh, a significant length, like right now, 12 years, like, does it, does it have to be reduced to eight or seven or even lower? Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think they'll go for that. I think, uh, I mean, if Scott Boros would just on principle, not allow that to, to happen, to, to backpedal that much. You know, if, if they have to go back out of the open market and go a different route and try to go for a higher average annual value and a shorter deal, they'll probably do that somewhere else unless potentially that, that can be renegotiated with the Mets. But I kind of don't see that happening. You know, Scott Boris is, is pretty steadfast in, in sticking to his guns. I don't think he'll allow that sort of a precedent to be set. Uh, with all that being said, I still believe that there is, as, as James said better, this James, what James said was it was was what I was trying to say is that yeah, there there probably is language that that can be done that can that can protect the Mets on the back end if that's what they're worried about. They're worried about potentially an injury, uh, projecting on an MRI. That's not a significant issue right now. It's not impeding him at all in terms of his performance. You know, surely there's got to be some language they can come up with to uh to make this deal work for the Mets I don't see the Yan Yankees can follow it but even still I don't see the Yankees going top dollar at, at the top of the pay scale and giving him a five-year deal or three to five-year deal or a shorter deal with a higher average annual value I'm not sure I see the Mets or the Yankees doing that you know to have him play what third base or a shortstop until Volpe's ready and then move him to third base when Donaldson's done with his deal this year I mean certainly you could throw him in the infield mix and then maybe trade somebody in that mix or try to reshuffle the deck there on the infield, but the Yankees have too many infielders as it is right now. They need a left fielder. So I'm not sure how Carlos Correa fits, although he's such a Supreme talent that if he falls into your lap, you, you tend to find ways to make that work, but uh, yeah, do you follow it? Yeah. Do I see the Yankees a potential fit? If that deal falls, falls apart, I'm not so sure that's the case. It'd like take a shocking development just the way it did with Correa and the Giants for the Mets to swoop in, it would take a shocking development for things to kind of fall in the Yankees' lap here. And I don't, I don't see lightning striking twice in one off season with one player like that. Yeah. So um, yeah, uh, definitely keep the tabs on it, but realistically, I think there's a resolution between uh, Correa and the Mets here as we get going for uh, 2023. Uh, David, are you like, are you like, Hey, it's my birthday week. I have a lot of activities planned, or is it like that one day and you're moving past it? Like, what do you have planned for the rest of the week? Uh, no, it was a one day thing. That's for sure. For me, you know, the rest of the week, it's back to business. You know, I mean, we're, the, when, what, this is always the time of year where you're on the countdown clock. Now you got past the holidays, you got past new year's Eve. Now we're looking at February, we're looking at spring training. It's countdown time, you know? And, and when I was a player, I was that way. I, I, I'm still programmed that way. I'm looking at the schedule. Okay, when's the first spring training game I'm working? When do I have to be in Tampa? You know, the, now it's really off-season, get as much as you can get done now the rest of the time because sooner or later we're right back on the clock. All of us are right back at the stadium and, uh, you know, and, and, and the season goes. And it's such a long season that you try to take advantage of every every off day you have in the, in the off-season. But, you know, I'm already looking forward now. Now it's time. You start thinking about, okay, let's get past the Super Bowl. And, uh, and, and baseball season is now officially uh, on the clock. This month goes by sneaky quick, at least for me. Like after the new year, you're, you're a little more than halfway past the offseason, closer to spring training. 
next few weeks go quick. Like you said, teams are conducting their business now in earnest as far as uh, at least, you know, on this side of the street with, with baseball, like all our schedules, uh, things start to get uh, ordered up in very short order. So uh, very much looking forward to the, to the weeks ahead. Cause before we know it, it's pitchers and catchers time, baby. That's going to do it for uh, this episode, guys. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss a beat with what we're streaming uh, each week here on Toe in the Slab. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, our excellent producer, Dan Rourke, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media.